Great leaders are not the strongest. They are the ones that are honest about their weaknesses. The great leaders are not the smartest. They are the ones who admit how much they don't know. The great leaders can't do everything. They are the ones who look to others to help them. Great leaders don't see themselves as great. They see themselves as human. Simon Sinek. Hey everyone, welcome back to the podcast. I am Cal Walters. Thank you so much for being here today. My hope is that this podcast can be a resource to help you grow as a person and as a leader, just as I'm on a journey to also grow as a person and as a leader. Now today I am super excited because I finally get to jump into the meat, the practical application part of servant leadership. I tell you, my hope is that at the end of this series, that you will be armed with a very specific framework and examples to go and to be a servant leader in your family, in your business, in your team, in your organization. You don't have to be a CEO or head of an organization to be able to benefit from the principles that I'm going to talk about today and in the coming weeks. And I hope that these principles can serve really as a North Star for you in the often very disorienting and challenging world of leadership. Leadership is hard but establishing those guiding principles up front really makes all the difference when you get into the moment. I will say if this is the first episode that you're listening to of this podcast and you haven't listened to the last episode, which is episode 16, where I introduced this topic of servant leadership, I'd encourage you to go ahead and pause this episode, go listen to that, and then come back. I think that will give you some important background information to kind of frame the discussion today. So for the past two weeks, I have been immersed in an exploration of servant leadership. I've been pulling out books and sections of books that I previously read. I've been reflecting on many of my experiences, and I've been really trying to be an observer of the leaders around me. And I'm pumped because I finally get to kind of share with you my findings and kind of the synthesis of what I've learned. Now, just a reminder, and I talked about this last episode, servant leadership should be a framework for which you view leadership. Think of servant leadership as a mindset, a philosophy that's going to undergird all the other skills that you need to be an effective leader. Servant leadership is not the end-all, be-all to being an incredible leader, but servant leadership is a philosophy that will help you frame the way you view your relationship to your team and to your people. So I'm going to jump right into the application of the principles today. Again, there are nine principles that I'm going to cover. Today, I'm just going to cover the first three, and that is that servant leaders empower others, servant leaders give credit, and servant leaders take the blame. And you'll notice that the foundation for all of these principles is something very similar, and that is humility. Now, humility is something that I think is often misunderstood. I think we often think of a humble person. We often think of kind of have this picture of someone who's quiet, maybe shy, maybe someone who's weak. But as I reflected on humility, I've come to the conclusion that humility is essentially just someone who has good self-awareness, someone who is authentic. I think actually the arrogant person is the person who just is someone who fails to see how they benefit from others. They're the one who's kind of living in an alternate 
reality. I think an arrogant person has just a false view of who they are. I think if you've lived with yourself long enough, you've lived with all the mistakes you've made, you're, you live with your own thought life, you, you know how much you've benefited from other people. And so really, I think humility, at the end of the day, is someone who's just authentic, who acknowledges they have strengths, but also acknowledges that they have weaknesses, they know they don't know everything, and they're eager to learn from others. They have this kind of curiosity. And a humble person genuinely believes that others can add value. So I just want you to think about humility as I cover these next three principles, or these first three principles, because humility is really fundamental to all three of these. So first, let me jump right in. So servant leaders, number one, first principle, is that servant leaders empower others. Servant leaders empower others. And I'll be honest, as I've reflected on my own leadership over the past 15 years or so, there have been seasons where I have really struggled with empowerment. I've, been, I've struggled with empowering others. And as I've thought through why have I struggled with this, I think a couple of things. One, I've been burned before. You know, I've trusted someone to execute on an important task and they've let me down. They've embarrassed me. Uh, they failed to get the job done when I really thought they were going to get the job done. Maybe you've experienced something similar. And I hope that as I discuss empowerment, I'll be able to offer you maybe a different way to think about that as I've kind of matured, I think, in the way I view that. Number two, I often think that I can do it better. I think I can do it more quickly. And so I think, okay, well, why don't I just do it? Why do I need to empower other people? It's just kind of a, a false view that I often have. Number three, often I love to have control. I love to feel like I you know, have it firmly in my grasp. But I think and the reason I think that is because to relinquish control requires trust and it also requires vulnerability because you are having to then put the responsibility of another task in another human being. But a few things that I've learned upon reflection, upon research, upon just kind of thinking more about empowerment is that a couple of things. One, empowerment, uh, I'm sorry, empowering others always leads to better results long term. Just bottom line. You're going to be able to get way more done when you're empowering other people. A team creates better results with less time and with less individual effort. It's just a fact of life. Theodore Roosevelt said that the best executive is the one who has sense enough to pick good men or women to do what they want to do and then has the self-restraint to keep from meddling with them while they do it. And I think that quote is powerful because it highlights there's two prongs to this. One, it's giving and empowering other people. And then two, it's intentionally having that self-restraint to say, I'm not gonna meddle with what they're doing. I'm gonna intentionally step back and allow them to exercise the discretion that I've given them. And that often can be the hardest part. Another point is that the more control that I retain, the more control that you and I retain, the less that our team members are learning and growing. People most often rise to the level of your belief in them. And as Craig Rochelle says, he has a great podcast on leadership. He says that the best way to find out if you can trust someone is to trust them, to, to give them the trust, let them start at a, at a position of having your trust, and then give them that trust and see how they do. Because you never know if you can trust someone if you never give them the chance to prove themselves. Give them the space to make mistakes and give them the space to learn and grow. The more control that you and I retain, that also means the less time, energy, and focus that you and I have for true leadership tasks. As I talked about before, the subordinate is, should be working in the system. The team member should be working in the team. While the leader is able to step back and objectively view the team and view the organization, and they're able to work on the team, 
work on the organization, improving it, seeing where there are efficiencies that can be made and being able to cast that vision into the future. I remember when I was at West Point, I was a young leader, but I was in charge as a cadet of about a hundred or so people. And I remember I was running around, I was doing all these tasks and I had what's called a TAC officer who's an active duty army officer. He was a major at the time. And I remember him just grabbing me and he said, Cal, you are the leader. You need to stop. I want you to stand right here in this one position and I want you to lead from this position. And so what he was trying to get me to do is to stop stop running around and doing all the tasks that I should be delegating and empowering other people to do and then I should be giving them the basic information they need and I should be able to stay in one position and then come back to me. And by doing that, it would allow me to truly lead. It allowed me to see everything that's happening versus getting so caught up in the minutia that I don't have that large perspective and that wide aperture to really make an impact. And as a leader, I have to focus my time and attention on the things that only I can do. And I think the sooner that as a leader we realize that, and the sooner that we get to doing what only we can do, the more efficient our organization is gonna be. Also, when we empower people, it allows our subordinates to be proactive. It allows them to take initiative and go do the things that we want them to do anyway. Empowerment allows subordinates to maximize their creativity. They will surprise you with their ability to create creative solutions. It allows them to tap into their own creativity. They're not just asking you, okay, what's the next thing I gotta do? Tell me everything I need to do, boss. Tell me exactly how to do it. They are using their brains, they're thinking, and they're able to use that creativity. Also, empowerment creates more fulfilled, more engaged, and more inspired team members. You think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs theory. He talks about one of the highest needs of a human is self-actualization. And self-actualization is really developing one's full potential, increasing one's competence, becoming a better person. When we empower people at work, when kind of going back to what I talked about last episode, about how people are unfulfilled at work. They're, they lack passion. They lack excitement. They don't feel excited to come to work. A big part of that is because leaders are not empowering them to meet their potential. They're not meeting that fundamental need that a human has to have self-actualization. So I wanna give you an example. I think one of the best examples of empowerment comes from a book called Turn the Ship Around. And it's a story about a Navy captain, retired David Marquette. Now, David Marquette was a career submariner. He graduated from the Naval Academy. He was at the top of his class. He was someone who climbed the ranks, mainly because of his abilities. He was smart, and he had that ability to take control, which a lot of leaders do. And in the late 1990s, Captain Marquette earned one of those great honors that any naval officer wants to have, and that's their own command. He learned that he was going to be taking over as the captain of the USS Olympia. It's a nuclear-powered, fast-attack submarine. Now, to prepare for the big job, Captain Marquette spent an entire year preparing. He was studying the Olympia. He was studying the systems. He was studying the crew. He learned every wire, every pipe, every switch on the Olympia. He studied all the personnel files. And Captain Marquette had this view of leadership, like many leaders do. He felt like that he needed to know every little thing in order to have credibility in front of his people. But then, just two weeks before he was supposed to take command of the USS Olympia, after doing all of this preparation and study for a year, Captain Marquette received a call. And the call was from his commanding officer. And it said, hey, Captain Marquette, change of plans. You're now gonna be assigned to the USS Santa Fe. 
And while the Olympia was considered to be the best of the best, the Santa Fe was at the bottom. In fact, the crew of the Santa Fe was ranked last in nearly every readiness and retention measurement the Navy had. And so first, after kind of feeling the shock of this news two weeks before he was supposed to take over on this really high-speed ship that he was well-trained on, Captain Marquette started to kind of warm up to the idea. He was like, okay, you know, I can use my talents and my skills to maybe turn this ship around. He thought, you know what, I'll just give really good orders and I will be able to turn this ship around. So on January 8th, 1999, Captain Marquette stepped off the dock at Pearl Harbor and onto this $2 billion ship, slightly longer than a football field, and joined his 135 crew members on the place that they would now call home. Now, taking over this new ship meant that there were gaps in Captain Marquette's knowledge because he was trained on another ship, but he was so afraid to admit that he had gaps in his knowledge that he never said anything to his crew. Because after all, from his perspective, the basis of his leadership authority came from his technical knowledge. So he was worried that if his crew found out that he didn't know everything, that they would lose respect for him. So with this view of leadership in mind, Captain Marquette defaulted to what he knew best, which is just to be in control. And so he started issuing orders. And it seemed to work at first. Everyone you know, seemed to respond. Everything was going smoothly. There was no question who the boss was. And then the next day, they were out at sea. And Captain Marquette decided, hey, let me run a drill. He wanted to see if his crew could respond to a nuclear reactor failure. So they shut down the nuclear reactor manually to kind of simulate the real thing. He also wanted to add a little bit of pressure to the crew by traveling at a little bit higher speed. So he gave a very simple order to the ship's navigator, which was the most experienced officer on the ship. And he said, hey, ahead two-thirds, ahead two-thirds. And this meant he wanted to run the ship two-thirds of the max power. So after he gave the order, the officer of the deck acknowledged and repeated the order out loud, instructing the submarine's driver to turn up the speed. Ahead two-thirds, ahead two-thirds. But nothing happened. The submarine's speed just remained the same. So Captain Marquette kind of peered out from behind the periscope to look at the enlisted crew member who was supposed to execute the order, and the young sailor was just kind of sitting there. And Captain Marquette says, Helsman, what's the problem? To which the young sailor replied, Sir, there's no two-thirds setting. So unlike every other submarine that Captain Marquette had been on, the Santa Fe, this new ship, didn't have a two-thirds setting. So Captain Marquette kind of confused, immediately turned to the navigator, who was, again, had been aboard the ship for two years, and he asked him, he said, did you know that there was no two-thirds setting? He said, yes, sir, replied the officer. Captain Marquette kind of confused, is like, so why the heck didn't you tell me? Why did you issue the order? Well, because you told me to, sir, said the officer. And it was in that moment that Captain Marquette had kind of had an aha moment. He realized, this is a problem. He's got a crew who's been trained to follow instructions, and he's been trained on a different ship. He finally understood that if this crew was going to blindly follow his orders simply because he was in charge, then something very bad was going to happen if something didn't change. So he learned that if he was going to succeed, he would have to learn to trust his crew, even if they didn't have the best reputation, even if they were ranked worst in the Navy. So in his book, Captain Marquette, explains how he turned the Santa Fe around by empowering his team members to be proactive, to make decisions, to share information. He had to trust his team members because they're the ones that had all the information, all the current information. The problem was they lacked authority. 
So what he tried to do is push the authority down to the people that had the information. In fact, one specific way he did this was he tried to change the culture of the ship by getting the people on the ship to switch from asking for permission to taking initiative. So instead of saying permission to sub submerge the ship, they would now say, sir, I intend to submerge the ship. And it was this shift, which seemed small, but it was a shift in mindset to from retaining power to giving authority and giving power and empowering his people. And as a result of this empowerment, the Santa Fe experienced incredible results. The relationships aboard were strengthened. The overall culture of trust and cooperation dramatically improved. The crew of the Santa Fe that was once ranked last became the best ranked crew in Navy history. And the rate of reenlistment on the ship went from three the year before Captain Marquette took over to 33. And on average, two to three officers per submarine normally get selected for their own command. But in, in contrast, nine out of the 14 officers aboard the Santa Fe went on to command their own ships. The Santa Fe didn't just make progress. The awesome thing is that the Santa Fe, through his leadership, made leaders. So you may say, well, great. I like the idea of empowerment, but how the heck do I do that? So let me just quickly go over, I think, some of the nuts and bolts of empowerment. So Craig Groeschel, I mentioned him before. He did a great podcast on empowerment. He said this, and I love it. He said, we empower people through two things, clarity and through trust. We must be clear on the what and the why, but not the how. So in other words, we have to give our subordinates, give our team members the what. We have to give them the why. We can tell them when we want this to be accomplished, but we don't tell them how. We empower them to go and execute within their own skills and creativity to figure it out. And they can always come back to us and ask questions, but we empower them to go and execute. In the military, we would say we give them the mission, which is the what, and we give them the intent, which is the why, and then we tell them to go execute. So clarity without trust, the problem is if you have clarity but you don't have trust, it produces fear and inaction. When you have clarity but no trust, you're looking over shoulders, you're causing fear, you hold on to things others could be doing instead. Fear can paralyze the people that you're trying to lead. And on the other hand of the spectrum, trust without clarity produces work without direction. Your team members might be bought in, but they don't know what to do. They'll start doing things that might not be important or right. If you want frustrated people, give them freedom without direction. And this all comes from Craig Groeschel's idea that you have to have both clarity and you have to have trust. So I just encourage you, as you're empowering your people, give them clear directions on what you want accomplished, Tell them why you want it accomplished and watch them run and surprise you. Trust them. And if they don't know it perfectly, then that's your opportunity to grow them, to build them, to help them get better. And here are the results of an empowered culture. You build leaders. People meet their potential. People are more fulfilled and excited about their work. Your team accomplishes more in less time. And you are able to focus on the tasks that only you can do. Instead of working in the business, you can now work on the business. Instead of focusing only on today, you can now cast a vision into the future. Now, top-down leaders, they hold onto the power, and servant leaders push power down. So number one, servant leaders empower. They empower their people. Principle number two is servant leaders give credit. Servant leaders give credit. That's principle number two. Now, all these principles, they work together. Now, while the leader is pushing power down, he or she is also looking for opportunities to recognize 
and to give credit to team members. Now, top-down leaders, they want to take all the credit. Servant leaders have the humility and genuinely know just how much their team is doing. Now, this isn't some kind of empty ritual. I'm not encouraging you to take some phony exercise. I'm talking about genuine appreciation for all that your people do. And I think the more you empower other people, the more you're going to appreciate all that they can do. You're going to see how they rise to that occasion. Now, the opposite of, it, of giving credit, the opposite of someone who's empowering is someone who always wants to be right. They feel threatened by the success of other people. And you often see this in top-down cultures where there's not this sharing of information. People feel threatened. Leaders actually, I mean, if you've ever been in an organization like this, leaders are afraid to give credit to their subordinates because they're so fearful that that it somehow reflects negatively upon them. So they have this false kind of view of their role as a leader. Now, I want to quickly just kind of discuss the impact of recognition. Now, Kim Blanchard says that people who feel good about themselves produce good results. And people who produce good results feel good about themselves. So it's this awesome circle that happens. Happy employees are 12% more productive than their less happy counterparts. When a leader takes the time to recognize a team member, the team member gains respect for the leader, and that team member knows that the work that they're doing is being seen, even during those private and difficult moments that every team member experiences. You know that nearly 90% of employees who receive recognition or thanks from their boss in the past month indicated higher levels of trust in that boss. While of those that received no recognition, only 48% indicated they trusted their team. So recognition leads to trust in leadership. And when team members feel recognized, they feel appreciated, and that makes them stick around. This means less time. This means less energy. This means less resources that you as the leader have to devote to hiring and onboarding new people, which we all know how difficult that can be when you have constant turnover. Not only that, but the motivation to push through continues long after that moment when you recognize someone. I remember many times where I have, I have been recognized by a leader publicly. And I remember those moments, those late nights, those early mornings as you're, as you're kind of slugging away. It's those moments of recognition that almost push you to perform at an even higher level than you would normally because now you have to maintain that level of recognition. It's like you don't want to let that leader down because you know they have this high view of you. So recognition often continues far after the moment of recognition. Just remember that what is rewarded is repeated. So if you see people that are doing great work, make sure you take the time, be intentional about recognizing them. And there are a lot of ways to give recognition. There's the big recognition in front of the entire organization. And that's great. I think you should do that as often as you can, because not only does that make that person feel great, but it also encourages other people to model what that person is doing. And it shows them that they work in an organization where great work is going to be recognized. So it's a motivator, not just to that person, but to other people. But it can be as simple as just saying thank you, just literally going to that person and just saying, hey, you know what, I, I genuinely appreciate what you did there. I saw what you did there. Thank you. It can be challenging them to do more meaningful responsibilities. It can be promoting them. It can be even something as simple as just proactively seeking their advice, going out and saying, hey, you know, I appreciate your perspective. So I want to ask you, what do you think about this? What do you think about this proposal? What do you think we should do? Just going to them, being proactive about that can be a form of recognition. Also, mentoring them, 
giving them time, giving them your energy, demonstrating that you care can be a form of recognition. Allowing them to challenge you can also be a form of recognition. It, it recognizes that they are a member of the team, that they're respected, and they have that permission to challenge you. I love, there's this incredible study, many of you may be familiar with it, but from 1996 to 2000, Jim Collins and his research team set out to answer one question, just one simple question. And the question was this, can a good company become a great company? And if so, how? Because most great companies were great from the start. They had great grandparents, as he says. Think George Merck, David Packard, Walt Disney. And most companies that are good never get beyond good. So it's very rare to find a good company that can lead to that point of greatness. So what they did is they examined 1,435 different companies that appeared in the Fortune 500 from 1965 to 1995. They found that only 11 good to great companies existed. And that's not some sample. That's literally only 11 companies that met this strenuous test. These companies averaged a cumulative stock return of 6.9 times the general stock market for the 15 years after the point of transition. For a little bit of a perspective, GE under Jack Welch during that same time outperformed the general stock market only 2.8 to 1. Now, once they identified these 11 good to great companies, they took a very thorough look into how the heck did these companies pull this off when so many others didn't. And here's the funny part. So Jim Collins actually gave his team explicit instructions. He says, I want you to downplay the role of the executive. I was, uh, he was worried that his team would kind of slide into what he said is the simplistic credit the leader or blame the leader thinking. So he really wanted them to look intentionally at other factors, but he couldn't ignore the data of these 11 good to great companies. His data led him to what he called level five leadership. Now, while level five leadership wasn't the only requirement from transforming to a good to great company, his research showed that it was essential. In other words, good to great transformation just doesn't happen unless you have someone that he called a level five leader. Now, what is a level five leader, you might be asking? Well, in short, it's this kind of rare combination of someone who has this intense professional will, but also this deep personal humility. And it's really this counterintuitive kind of countercultural image that we have of that dynamic, larger than life type leader, but that's not what his data revealed. One of the things he noticed with the, pe the people that manifested this type of level five humility is that they routinely gave credit to other people in their company for the success of their company. When the results were poor, they blamed themselves. In fact, it was funny throughout the interviews when they were interviewing these level five executives, Jim Collins and his team were struck by how little these executives talked about themselves. They'd go on and on about the contribution of other executives and their team. They would instinctively deflect the discussion away from their own role. And even when pressed to talk about themselves, they'd say things like, I hope I'm not sounding like a big shot, or I don't think I can t take much credit for what happened. We were blessed with marvelous people. In fact, one level five leader even remarked, there are a lot of people in this company who could do my job a lot better than I. So principle number two, if you want to be a level five leader, is to give credit to your people. Principle number three, 
Last principle for today, servant leaders take the blame. Now, when I think about this principle, I think of a very small but very impactful experience that I had while I was working with a senior colonel on this important investigation. One of my jobs was to coordinate with all the witnesses to make sure they knew the time and place for the interviews that he was doing. This was an important investigation. We were doing a lot of interviews, but I somehow told some important people the wrong time. I was wrong by about 30 minutes. I was embarrassed. And when I discovered my mistake, it was too late to reschedule these meetings. So I told the colonel, I said, Hey, sir, I made a mistake. I'll take full ownership for it. And I was prepared. I was prepared to apologize to these people when they came to let them know, Hey, I made the mistake. This is not the colonel's fault. So as we were walking into this interview room with these important witnesses, I started to kind of speak up. I went ahead and I was going to explain to them, Hey, my mistake. I'm so sorry to make you wait. I'm so sorry. We got the time wrong, but this colonel, he motioned for me to stop and he proceeded to physically put himself in front of me and he publicly apologized to them and took ownership for the mistake. And I don't, I know that seems small, but that was a powerful moment for me. I mean, it was just an incredible example of this Colonel who absolutely didn't have to do that. I was about to take ownership of this to these people, but he stepped in the gap and he demonstrated that he was going to take ownership of that. And afterwards, I remember I thanked him and I said, Sir, I really feel bad that I made you look bad like that. And he responded that I was doing excellent work and he probably didn't give me clear enough guidance. And he was confident it wouldn't happen again. And I know that sounds small, but I just remember as a, you know, a subordinate leader looking up to him, I mean, that was a significant moment for me. It made me really respect him as a leader. It made me want to work harder. It made me want to make him look good. It made me never want to make him look bad again, never put him on a bad spot again. It built loyalty in me and it gave me courage to do that to the people that I lead. In his book, Extreme Ownership, the former Navy SEAL, many of you may know of him. His name is Jocko Willink. He discusses this friendly fire incident in which one of his SEAL teams accidentally killed a member of the Iraqi military. The operation was this perfect storm of mistakes that led to the death. People went into the locations at the wrong time, they moved in the wrong directions, and Jocko was immediately ordered to shut down operations, return to base, and be prepared to brief his higher command. He knew the higher ups, they were gonna want someone's head to roll for this, for this significant incident. And so as Jocko was preparing for the briefing, even as late as 20 minutes right before the briefing was scheduled to go, he was trying to pinpoint what the heck happened? What was the point of failure? And as he stepped further back from the situation, he had this moment of clarity and he realized he was the single point of failure. As the leader, he was responsible. So this is exactly what Jocko did in the briefing to the hirons. He took full responsibility and he promised something like that would never happen again. And I remember when I first read Extreme Ownership, I kind of struggled with this idea because Jocko Willick in the book, he really puts forward this idea that leaders have to take extreme ownership. So I kind of struggled. I struggled to fully embrace that as a concept. In my head, I kept thinking, okay, how do we hold people accountable if we're going to take responsibility for everything, surely there are people making mistakes on our team. How do we push people to do better if we're constantly taking responsibility? But then the more I reflected on this concept and my own experiences, I think this is absolutely the right answer. And here's what I discovered. I discovered that extreme ownership is a mindset. It is that most important mindset because it forces the leader to look long and hard at himself or herself first. 
Because if you don't have this extreme ownership mindset, your human inclination is gonna kick in and you're gonna start blaming other people. Even if you don't do it publicly, you're gonna know, hey, that wasn't my fault, that wasn't my fault. And doing that, you're gonna miss opportunities to get better as a leader. You're not gonna take a hard look in the mirror and the leader's gonna continue with these blind spots and then the whole team is gonna suffer. As Jocko often says, there are no bad teams, only bad leaders. So I encourage you to adopt this as a mindset. Never ever blame someone else publicly and only deal with performance issues after you've fully explored your own role and responsibility. Now this doesn't mean you can't still hold people accountable, but it means that you can only do that after you first take a long and hard examination of your own mistakes. Did you give them clear directions? Did you train this person well? Did you train them sufficiently? Did you resource them? And then when you meet with them, the first and foremost goal you have is to understand, understand what happened. You, you approach them from a position of trust, not suspicion. And by taking this mentality, you're gonna build a culture of trust, you're gonna build a culture of safety, and you're gonna build a culture of loyalty. So principle number three, take the blame. Servant leaders take the blame. I wanna give you a few discussion questions to wrap this up so you can think about this with your team. If you have a team, consider getting them together, discussing this as a group, or grab someone that you know. Grab someone that you know is gonna give you honest, constructive feedback and ask these questions with them present. Or if you don't have that, just ask yourself these questions. I encourage you to take some time to write down your answers to these questions. I think it makes us all better. Number one, as a leader, am I doing what only I can do? This question is gonna help you see if you are truly empowering others or are you holding back? Are you holding back that responsibility and that power? Number two, am I communicating clearly and trusting people on my team with the how? Are you trusting them with the how to execute? If the honest answer to this is no, then examine why you're holding back. Perhaps it's a strong desire to remain in control. Perhaps you don't like asking people to do things that you think you could do. But I just wanna encourage you that it's by empowering others that they learn, they meet their potential, they experience that greater fulfillment and you create other leaders. Question number three, what am I doing to recognize people on my team and how can I do more? And then question number four, when things go wrong, am I passing the blame or am I taking ownership? Examine the last few incidents on your team, in your company, in your organization to see if you took sufficient ownership. So guys, I hope that this helped someone today. I wanna thank all of you that have subscribed to the podcast, those that have given a rating on iTunes, those that have taken the time to do a written review of the podcast. That helps to make this podcast more accessible to people and to help other people grow. If you, if you got something out of today, I just wanna encourage you to share this, either on social media, share it with a friend, share it through text. And also, I wanna encourage you to reach out to me. Let me know your thoughts on this. If you disagree, I would love to hear that. If you have great examples of how you've done this, I would love to hear that and connect with you. I just want to encourage you to go out and use these principles, apply these principles to your leadership. Next week, we're going to jump into the next three principles on servant leadership. I hope you got something out of this. Continue to go out, be the best you, and then be the best leader that you can be because you're making an impact. You're making a difference. You're making a contribution to the world when you do that. Life is short. Let's make it count.